Hey people, welcome to Accidental Gods, to the podcast where we believe that another world is still possible and that together we can make it happen. My name's Amanda Scott. I'm your host at this place on the web where art meets activism, politics meets philosophy, and science meets spirituality, all in the service of conscious evolution. And in the service of conscious evolution, we would like to offer you this podcast extra. Way back in episode 74, we spoke with Ejitemo Kuran, the celebrated international columnist, political commentator, novelist, and author of two non-fiction books, How to Lose a Country, is written from the inside of what it's like to lose your nation to fascism and is an absolute call to action for all those of us in what we like to think of as the liberal West, as we potentially lose our countries. But then she went on to write, together, ten ways that we can overcome the anti-humanism of fascism and become the people that we need to be to build a better, more flourishing future. And that conversation felt so deep and so useful and so mind-expanding to me that we invited Ejib back for a Zoom call that took place on the afternoon of Sunday, the 5th of September, and we recorded it. And we thought you might enjoy it. So here it is, people of the podcast. Please welcome a Zoom call with Ejib Temelkuran. Hi guys, welcome. We're just going to let people, uh, when, I've, when we've got to more than 30 seconds without somebody dropping in, we'll start, but um, we may as well let people keep coming. Um, and for everybody who's in so far, I am recording this. If you're not all right with that, and if you don't want yourself to be recorded, then either cut your camera or let me know in the chat. But we had Buenos so dias, Jorge, from uh, Club de Lecturas. Jorge, I don't know him, actually. This is the first time we meet. <laughs> But yesterday they held an international book club uh, yeah. for how to lose a country. And there, I, I saw the YouTube video. There were members from Guatemala, Argentina, Mexico, uh, where else? Spain, I think. Yes. Uh, so yeah. I was touched, really. I was so happy to see that. I don't understand the word, but it was amazing <laughs> to see that. No, well, thank you very much for that. We really enjoyed having the debate about your book, really. And, and our club is, is, is in Spanish, so most of the members are in, based in Spain or Latin America. So it was a real pleasure. The, listening to it was like a music. <laughs> Probably <laughs> you were talking about fascism or something, but it sounded so romantic. So <laughs> <laughs> Nice to meet you. <laughs> you too. <laughs> very pleased to meet you, actually. Yeah, and I'm very happy yeah. to see you here. <laughs> well, yeah. Thank you. So people well, you know, still- we are, we are, Sorry, go on. Okay, go on. No, sorry, just to say we are going to have a second session because yesterday we covered just the first half. Mm-hmm. So the second one is in two weeks. And, and I, I, I I, don't know, I said in a, in a tweet, if, if you were able to join us, we'll be... Yeah, I, I would we say hello do. for sure. I, I know <laughs> buenos dias and muchas gracias. So no, I mean, well, like, why wouldn't I join uh, Spanish? We could, we could have, <laughs> we could try a bilingual, a bilingual session. <laughs> be a, be a I'm, I'm coming to Chile in November. Uh, to speak about how to lose a country. Ah, so super. I'll put it on social media, probably you'll see. Super. Yeah. We've had more than 30 seconds without anybody dropping in, so shall we start? And I'll just continue yes, please do. as they arrive. So um, thank you all very much for, for coming to see the amazing and very wonderful 
edgy. Oh, She's, I, we share an agent, which is how we got to know each other. And I've never discovered how you got to share an agent, but that was probably a story for another time. Um, and I don't often have internationally famous people on the podcast. <laughs> it was such... Uh, I'd really, there's very rarely where I feel my brain, I can feel the edges of my mind being stretched as we're speaking. And that was happening during the podcast with Edgy. It just felt so, as if there was so much depth that we could have gone into and we were limited. So here we are and we can, we can go into more depth here. So I would recommend that you all put Edgy onto speaker view and pin her. Um, if, I'm sure you're all familiar with Zoom by now, but if you're not, then pinning her means that if somebody else asks a question, you don't flip off Edgy to see 30 seconds of them asking a question and then flip back again. Um, and speak of you just means she's going to fill your screen a little bit better. So, Edgy, over to you really. But um, I just want to say to everybody, if you have questions, you can, the easiest thing to do is to put them in the chat. Um, and I will see that and then I'll, I will ask them or I will say your name and say, person whose name I probably can't pronounce has a question and, and then you can ask it so that we don't have people asking over each other. So if you have anything that you want to know, then, then put it into the chat. And someone's just put in the chat that they, they got the invitation, they came along without having read the book. That's fine. You're going to find out all about the book and then you can buy it afterwards. That's, that is completely fine. <laughs> so, um, so we initially, we are intending to talk about together, but if we end up talking about how to lose a country because one group has already been discussing that, then I'm sure Edgy is capable of talking about any of the books that she's read. So while we're waiting for people to think of questions that they might like, and while I'm getting my own screen sorted, one of the things that we got to while we were doing the podcast was the distinction between dignity and pride, which struck me as one of those things that if we could disseminate that distinction, and help people to understand the difference between dignity and pride, we would be a step closer to the world that we need to get to. And I wonder, since we had that conversation, you've been talking to a lot of people, is that particular message sinking in, do you think? Are people absorbing that, or was it just a flag that went off in my head alone? Uh, well, first of all, thank you, Manda, and thank you, everyone, uh, for joining in on this Sunday um, well, there are, there are 10 words in the book. One of them is dignity, and I try to distinguish between pride and dignity to explain one of the perils of our age, which actually caused right-wing populism and fascism. But all the, you know, all the words or concepts that I mentioned in the book are very old you know, words. But I think we all have to get back to the, those old words because we are all confused. And when you are confused, it is better to get back to the fundamental definitions so that you can find your way back to today again, today's mess. So I was, distinct, I was making a distinction between pride and dignity and showing that we need more dignity than pride. But right-wing populists were uh, mobilizing. Uh, the masses under the word pride. Mm. I don't think uh, people do understand that yet. Uh, and I, you know, I, I wrote How to Lose a Country because I felt losing a country. I come from Turkey and Turkey has been 
ahead of the curve, so to speak, with Hungary, with Russia, with India, uh, or Brazil. Uh, whereas I think Britain, where the book was initially published, or France, or Germany, or United States, they they felt like they are exceptional for most quite a long time actually when how to lose a country was published and when i was talking about it in britain and in the united states people were you know treating me like a crazy woman and who you know and they were very confident uh, when saying that it couldn't happen here it cannot happen here but then we saw that it's happening so i think now, together is a little bit ahead of, the, of its time as well, especially for Western European countries, because I wrote together to kind of heal the moral damage that right-wing populism and fascism is uh, imposing on us. So I think it, those words, not only the distinction between pride and dignity, but all other words, and the reason I talk about them, will be sinking in like in, in coming months. I am hoping that. Uh, because after How to Lose a Country, I think many people, the readers of that book, expected me to write a revolutionary cookbook mm -hmm. or a guidebook to how to organize and so on. Whereas I, 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 cho I did not choose to do such a practical thing. And I thought that there is something uh, missing or there's something wrong with the morality of this age. And that is where we should begin talking and where, that is where we should um, sort of prepare a treatise, a contract uh, for our age so that we can create the new politics upon those, uh, you know, uh, conceptual pillars in a way. Mm -hmm. So I think it's going to sink in, but it is still a little bit early, I think. And also, Manda, this is since we are like not many people since we are among each among yeah. ourselves i can tell this uh when i talked to you in the podcast and before that and a little bit after that as well i now understand that i do, i didn't know how to talk about the book uh because it, for a writer it's interesting writing the book is something but then formulating the book in the interviews is completely different so now I am more like <laughs> i am more aware of what i did and why i did it and i can formulate it more, um, you know, explicitly. Um, so yeah, now I am thinking that I wrote this book, and I wanted to be—I wanted this book to be Ingrid Bergman of Casablanca, because I. <laughs> no, You're so, have to that one. <laughs> so because you know everybody's like Rick, you know, bitter, retreating, uh, and you know. In the in the pow, under the powers of nihilism and fatalism and so on, uh, and what Ingrid Bergman did to Rick to Humphrey Bogart in Casablanca was to remind him who he was, and who he is, and who what he can do. So, this mm. is what I wanted to do because it went together because we can fix the practical terms. Uh, in today's politics, we can make institutional changes. We can change the people, we can change the leaders, but there is something rotten in the core of our thinking. This is what I, why I wrote together, because I think the understanding of neoliberal liberal understanding of human, human 
and neoliberal understanding of life actually contaminated all of us and even those of us who considered themselves controversial or in the opposition. So, and when I thought about it, what is this neoliberal understanding of human being? Uh, what has it done to us? I came to think that it actually damaged our faith in ourselves. That is why we lost the agency. That is why we don't anymore believe that we have the agency. And in order to change the world, we have to believe that we have agency and we have to believe it 100%. So that was the central theme, you know, when I started the book. Uh, and it is not easy to explain it, especially in interviews, because faith is such a, you know, ambivalent word. It's a dangerous word and it has a habit of getting out of hand. Uh, several other words are like that in the book, like love and so on. So, yeah. Uh, I am, uh, you know, going all around the book now, but yeah, pride and the, the distinction between pride and uh, dignity is one of them. Uh, yeah, this is all I have to say now. <laughs> I, I, I so dropped the mic in a, in a most, you know, inconvenient place, I know, but no, I see... That's good, because there's at least, I can think of at least four questions I would like to ask from that, but... Is it Jorge? Have I said that right? Anyway, the, the charming, he's, a, he's got a question in the chat. Of why do you think the populist trend you analyse in How to Lose a Country is apparently limited to a phenomenon of the political right? Actually, Jorge, do you want to ask you a question yourself? Unmute yourself and well, <laughs> be nice. I don't know. I think my English is better by writing than by speaking, but well, <laughs> in any case. No, we were a bit surprised yesterday in our debate because I think we, we lim you limit your analysis as a phenomenon of the, of the political right. But I think there are many samples of, I don't know, this kind of trend on the, on the left as well, especially in Latin America. We can see it in Venezuela, Nicaragua. Uh, Mexico. How well. do you like that? Yeah. Um, this is an interesting question uh, because it, my answer depends on where I am answering this question. When I am asked this question in Britain or in the United States, I take the question as a manipulation because they want me to speak about the authoritarian left. Mm. And uh, it, that uh, kind of reference uh, is not completely um, good intended, well intended, because they want to... It, I feel like they want me to say that, of course, there is Stalin, there is a Soviet Union, and so on and so forth. But then it, I find myself feeding the Cold War discourse when I do that. So when I'm asked this question in Western European countries, I don't want to speak about it. And I say this, you know, my answer is generally what we are dealing with right wing populism today. So let's focus on that. But when I'm asked this question by a Mexican, or like yourself, anybody from Latin America who are referring to Venezuela or Mexico or Nicaragua, uh, I go, yeah, I understand you and you are right. But then I do not believe that these leaders and their supporters are necessarily progressive people. They are not leftists. Authoritarians and populists actually do not have an ideology even the right-wing populists, I don't believe that they have an ideological 
understanding of the world or they do not really uh, believe in some ideals. That's a better pay way to put it. Their only ideology is this pragmatism, extreme pragmatism, and uh, their only ideal is to seize power and to stay in power. And that's it, and using authoritarian means, obviously. So, yes, there is a so-called left-wing left uh, populism and authoritarianism today in Mexico, in, Mexico, in, in Nicaragua, in, in Venezuela as well. And it is breaking my heart because the symbols, the references, and the emotions these leaders are using uh, are the symbols, emotions, and the references that the progressive people uh, have been using for decades, like Che Guevara and several other things. I was in Venezuela uh, when Chavez came to power. I was there to, rep uh, to report on progress. Uh, what is this? Not progress, Proceso. Uh, and then I wrote a book. Uh, and the title of the book, this book is in Turkish, not in English. The title of the book is We're Making a Revolution Here, Senorita. And the title of the book came from my, from my, one of my interviews. I was in this gas company, the national gas company, and I was talking to the head of the company, and I was asking about numbers, statistics, and you know, information, and so on. And then he got bored, and he said, we're making a revolution here, senorita. We don't have time for numbers. Uh, it's, it's like, you know, you can understand it both ways. There's a lot to, uh, we have to do. We, I cannot tell you the numbers now. Or I don't want to give you any information because we are in power now and we don't have to give the information. The transparency is not our priority, let's say. So I saw how it happened and how it's, you know, how many good people, how many... Uh, all those, uh, you know, young people especially believed in this in the first place and then how it corrupted, how the leadership of that process uh, has corrupted the entire, uh, entire country and how they ruined uh, the hopes of the people. So it, was, it is personally painful for me to uh, accept, accept that Latin America is now, several countries in Latin America are now under the pressure of authoritarian leaders and they are using the leftist discourse to do this. I don't know if this would, this is a answer that would satisfy you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, thank you very much. I agree. Sure. So welcome to the people who've come in while Edu was talking. Um, and nobody else has asked a question yet, so that means I get to ask some of the other ones. I, so I would like to continue a little bit along the line that we started there. Because it seems to me that if we look further back in the last century, Chile was under a very hard right-wing regime for quite a long time that was fostered by the United States. Now the United States is possibly, maybe, less likely to endeavour to impose its own financial and political views on other countries by force, which will be good. But we're up against a very hard climate and ecological timeline. If we don't sort ourselves out, it doesn't matter who's in power. We're all going to head off over the edge of the cliff. So what 
what I'm hearing from you is that wherever we are in the world, the people who take power end up, whatever their starting point was, they end up being authoritarian. And we didn't go down the rabbit hole of whether the fact that everybody has a phone and we can now track everything that everybody does, you know, minute by minute, we can listen to what we're saying. This is, you know, this conversation is being recorded and somewhere along the line there will be some AI system that is analysing it. They're not going to hear anything we haven't heard before. It seemed to me that the message of together, which was different to the message of how to lose a country, was that if enough of us can find what we might loosely call the better angels of our nature, we can create a system where the people who pull the levers and make things happen don't become addicted to power. In your talking and explorations since the book, have you come across any examples where that is already happening, that we could begin to take as models and build on? Yes, I do, and you do as well. Um, I think, especially during the pandemic, when our governments, both I'm talking about both in Britain and Turkey, when they couldn't do enough and when they were lying, when they weren't giving information, we were living the real life and we were helping each other. During the pandemic, I know that in Britain and in Turkey as well, the, so many mutual aid groups popped up. And now many politicians uh, or progressive people or writers like me, they are trying to find a way to institu institutionalize these mutual aid groups. How can we steer our politics into these solidarity, into these solidarity groups and how can we make them the dominant understanding of politics? The other day uh, I, was in, uh, I was having a conversation in Edinburgh Festival with Ed Miliband. He wrote a book with the title Go Big. And then I noticed that him being a politician, me being a writer, we wrote the same thing and we looked at the same direction. It is this mutual aid groups, these solidarity groups and how people help each other uh, when there is no government that is uh, responsible, that, uh, you know, that doesn't behave responsibly. So actually, and especially in Turkey, in a very recent time, like you know, a few weeks ago, there were massive wildfires uh, on the southern coast of Turkey. And because of the political reasons, because uh, these, these coastliners, they didn't vote for the regime, Erdogan basically watched the wildfires devour the entire coastline, which, by the way, is the best place, best, most beautiful place in Turkey, most beautiful places in Turkey. So, and all these people, they saw that the government was completely absent. They, on their own, came together on social media and hired a plane from another country to come and to put out the fire. One day you're sitting at your home, you know nothing about the fire. Next day you find yourself hiring a plane, you know, from another country. When things happen, when the crisis happens, the, the evil and the good crystallizes uh, equally. And the good, we have to look at the good, and the good was this. People could manage themselves without the state, without the government. This is not necessarily an amazing thing because the government has to be there, the state has to be there. But still, we, now, we are now learning, I think, to live without the 
without a domineering power. We know how to deal with our problems without the power. We, unfortunately, we are you know, learning this through the you know, biggest tragedies, but we are learning it. So I think this is where we have to look at. This is, how, this is what we have to think. How do we sustain these groups that pop up only during the crises? So, um, and in the book, I also talked about a Black Lives Matter movement because it was interesting, especially, you know, especially think if we think that it was a time when we weren't supposed to go out, when we weren't supposed to be together, and these people went out to protect their dignity. This is another moment of good being crystallized during a crisis. I think uh, we might want to focus on them and see how we can make it more enduring uh, in politics and in our social life. So I think this will be the question of 21st century because we are going to see many more crises and we're going to see many more of these uh, solidarity actions and so on. And we will have to find a way to make them the dominant uh, you know, system uh, on the planet. So, and I think this is a this is the way out, as well as local politics, because local politics will become the reek of uh, of new politics, and the new people, new young generation will be going around uh, local politics. Will be gathering around local politics to change uh, the national politics. So, these are nice. I wouldn't say positive things, but these are new things that gives me hope. I would say. And faith. Brilliant. Thank faith. you. Yes. Yes. <laughs> I remember you saying the distinction between them. So we have two questions in the chat. Eva, Eva from Peru, do you want to unmute and ask your question? Hello, Eva, are you there? Okay. Well, Eva asked why you have to wait for the government to take care of everything. Uh, good, afternoon. good afternoon, Eva. Eva, we can't hear you. Eva? Okay, I'll ask it. She's, and it's in the chat. Why, why do we have to wait for the government to take care of everything? I think that we should, we have to change the world. We should all participate, I think is what it's saying, which is basically yeah. what you just said. Yeah, yeah. Th that's a good thing to say. But the problem is, it's not uh, we're not participating. Today's problem is we not many people, not enough number of people have the will to participate. This is an important issue because that goes back to this uh, neoliberal liberal understanding of the human and how it actually contaminated our minds. Because we, we no more have the will to self-manage in a way. Only in crises we are doing that. Otherwise, we do not want to take part in the decision making. We are so bored of it and we think of it as very too complicated, too complex. And when I say this, my, you know, I you know, immediately think about Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan because they were the ones in 1980, who, 80s, who told us that you know, there are adults in the room, you don't have to do anything anymore. Uh, economy is too complex and it's going to be the dominant, uh, you know, uh, area that will rule uh, the rest of the life and we're going to take care of it because numbers are talking to numbers now so you don't have to know and you don't want to know anyway. Mm. I think, you know, 
not enough people are talking about how 80s made this world that we are living in and how we suddenly took it uh, as the natural state of the world. There are many people, of course, who are, who are talking about it, but not enough number of people are aware of the fact that this has only been 40 years that we are living in this world. The world was not like this before 1980s. The people were not like this before 1980s. And now I'm thinking, I mean, I am thinking all these white, black and white um, or colored documentaries that I, I've seen, political documentaries about 1960s, 1970s. And I am comparing those faces to today's faces. And I see lack of faith, lack of um, seriousness, so to speak, because we are all contaminated with the sarcasm, with nihilism, uh, with cynicism. And there is no way for us today to talk about human love without being, you know, uh, faced with smirks. Like, yeah. uh huh, human love, uh huh. We're talking about politics. Senorita, like we're not talking about some, you know, new age shit. This would be the answer you'd get if you talk about human love. Whereas when you said it in 1970s, they would be, I think, many of them would be very clear about that. Of course, what we are doing, what we are doing because of human love, because we love humans, because we believe in humans, we believe in the wisdom of humankind and so on. But the, today, my, my point is, I am curious about this. Why have we become so embarrassed, so shy to talk about these concepts, which have been the fundamental values of progressives? And also, one of the reasons I wrote this book is that we are living in a world where politics is dominated by emotions, right-wing populists, authoritarian leaders, nationalists, they are all stirring emotions, they are all manipulating, they are all organizing these emotions. Yes, I mean, like, they are uh, exploiting these emotions, but emotions are there. We, it's a highly emotional world right now, and everybody's talking about emotions. So we as progressives have to have something, we have to have something to say about emotions. We cannot just bypass it and say that emotions are like a slippery ground, we don't want to talk about it, we want to talk about economy, we want to talk about equality and so on. But then people have emotions. For instance, we feel, we don't know what to feel about this extinction thing, about the apocalypse, let's say, because we know that actually there is no time anymore and we lost all the time we had and we are feeling completely helpless and we don't feel that we can change anything. But at the same time, we're trying to feel like, you know, we have time, we can still do it. And if we can, you know, convince enough people, we can do it. This is an, you know, this is a reality, but also an emotional state. So we have to do something about this. And this is why the book starts with now. You know, now we have to do something now is an amazingly uh, horrifying sentence. What? Now what? I mean, now is a, you know, very uh, frustrating word. It is devastating now because when even you say now, whenever you say now, you miss the moment. So we are in this state. When the, we are in the state of mind. We are in this emotional state and progressives have to talk about it. 
we have to talk, we have to come up with a cure, we have to think about it and we have to share it to start with because there is this understanding of progressives and you know progressive intellectuals leftist uh, opinion makers uh, and many people think that they are living in this other world where real things are not happening and they are in this you know glass tower so they don't have to go through things and they are only thinking about economy blah, 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 you know new universal income no it's not like that we are feeling and we have to share this in order to share uh, today's reality with the people who are not convinced with the facts because we are living in an era where the facts do not convince people we have to convince them through irrefutable words like dignity, that, like human life, love, like faith in humankind and so on. Yes, we, we've got a couple of questions in the chat, but I'd just like to, so all 10 words in your book seem to me words that were deliberately chosen to sink in at an emotional level. Mm-hmm. Have, so, so, taking that thought, one of the, things it seems to me the difference between now and the 60s 70s is that we have social media which is designed to target our amygdalas it's designed to go you know the race to the bottom of the brainstem is a thing and and i listen quite a lot to the tech people discussing this and they say well you know facebook decided to stop targeting your amygdala and stop showing you all the outrage you would move off facebook to the thing that was giving you that little those little emotional free songs because that's mm-hmm hardwired into humanity. In your conversations with people, and I so wish I had listened to the one with Ed Miliband, I want to find that online. Yeah, yeah, um, I think it's online, it is it, on the web now. He thinks really deeply. How do we, as progressives, as people who believe, have faith in humanity, have hope for the future, want dignity for all of humanity and the more than human world, how can we begin to shift the balance back to the point where that those sets of concepts are not laughed at. Are you finding any, I mean, I realize that's basically what your book is for, but as you're going around talking to people, are you seeing those concepts gaining traction? Or is it that people just kind of nod and go back and then fixate on their their phones again and they're back on Twitter screaming at each other? I think young people will be doing this very soon. I think young people will be talking about these concepts very soon. we, you know, 1980s was not only, uh, you know, is a period was a period that forged the world to to become different, to be less humane, and so on. But also, it was erasing the memory. It erased it so much so that young generation today think that socialism is a new sexy idea. No, seriously, you know, that's why socialism suddenly is the most looked up word in American web pages, uh, mm-hmm. in Merriam-Webster. You know, so they really don't remember, so they have to go back and they really think that uh, you know, this is a new thing. So they will also think that dignity is a new word, not necessarily as a word, but uh, this is a new perspective. Mm-hmm. Because they have been born into, actually I was born into, I grew up in that world as well. Uh, the world since 1980s is a strange world because we are all living in legal systems where the fundamental assumption is that human is good. It's, 
uh, well-intending and so on. But our economic systems are standing upon the assumption that humans are bad and lazy mm. and they, want, they are greedy and so yeah. on. So this fundamental conflict uh, is the conflict that you know, produces lack of dignity, for instance, in our life. We are dignities, more or less, you know, which, it doesn't matter which class we belong to. Our dignities are bruised, are damaged. And I think the young generation is already aware of this fact. They are not uh, praising hardworking, uh, hard work as much as we did, for instance. This is very interesting to me. Uh, the, 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 you know, their moral values are going to be different. Uh, and they want less. They want smaller. Mm. Um, they want uh, silence. Uh, they want uh, fragile and so on. Their words are different because our words in 1980s were power, faster, bigger, and so on. Now they are coming to, to terms with the real needs of humankind because we are in the age of apocalypse and they are living in this, in this world where a sort of uh, morality of surviving is emerging. It can go both ways, morality of survival. You can do like what this Elon Musk does, you know, you can build and try to build a bunker in the moon or something, or you can come to terms with the fact that we are fragile, we are human, and we have endless capacity to, for solidarity and only way we can be free is to be together and to work together and so on. So I think young people, especially those people who are in this Extinction Rebellion, in climate uh, strike and so on, they are, you know, uh, putting their weight on this better morality of survival. So they are going to be talking about these words with a lot of poetry, I would say. More poetic, you know, politics will be, become more poetic. Brilliant. Super. Okay, we've got some quite big questions. There's a very yeah. short question in, in the chat, which we'll come back to the question about another book towards the end. So um, Jennifer, Jennifer's asked a very Scottish-focused question, and you were in Edinburgh recently, but I guess it can be generalised. In Scotland, the government has committed to arranging a national care service to centralise all social care. The consultation is short, the details sparse on how this will be achieved. Is this centralised grab for power an expected reaction to local control? Is this the way governments behave the world over, I guess? Okay, since this is not a big, big audience that I have to be careful about, I'm going to ask you something, actually. <laughs> because I see How to Lose a Country read by Scottish readers and they're referring to Sturgeon. And I don't understand that because I don't really know about Scottish politics. Uh, but uh, in general, I can understand this, uh, I can answer this question uh, by saying that, you know, care be... Mm, yes, it might be, it might be. But then 
Could I ask it? I mean, my thought was when you were speaking back and saying that there were lots of um, positive examples of how during COVID, because I wrote it then, and then we yeah. talked about other things. So just to put it into that context, we talked about really positive things happening and, and developing out of COVID, a lot of general um, local things, positive things. But in Scotland, I, I wondered, I wondered about the trajectory because I'm only halfway through how to lose a country. And I'm interested in the concept that after we have done a lot of this uh, local work, a lot of people banding together to support in local communities, the reaction was to do a review of how we deliver all social care. And then the outcome of that is this really quick, we're going to set up an entirely new centralized thing, and it's all the power is going to come right back up to the top. And just as you were speaking about this positive boon of people working in their um, local areas to, to do good things during COVID, I wondered, is this a reaction that can often happen in governments where they've seen some positive elements coming from local areas and they instead suck that up to be more yeah. of a central, not necessarily well, surgeon, but just in general. <laughs> thank you, Jennifer. Uh, I was thinking, like, you know, I also said that uh, politics is trying to find a way to institutionalize this uh, caring economy, economy of care, uh, you know, economy of solidarity, social, you know, making these mutual aid, uh, you know, groups more uh, larger and so on and so forth. So maybe this is one of those attempts. Of course, you know, whenever something comes from power, we have to be suspicious about it, that is, and critical as well. But this might also be understood as, you know, okay, this is working, so we have to build something with this, upon this, and so on. So, yeah, and also, um, you know, yeah, anyway, I'll stop it there because uh, I don't know enough about Scottish politics to talk about it. But yeah, th these attempts should be met with suspicion, but also some kind of, uh, you know, goodwill as well, because... It might be well intended, <laughs> I would say. Thank you. Yes, because looking from England, I look at the Scottish government and I am so envious. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we keep we keep talking about running north and hiding before the border closes. Um, no, it's interesting because women, you know, Jacinda Ardern, somehow Merkel, and these women are not leftists. They're coming from conservative politics and Sturgeon and so on, uh, they're doing quite a good job and they are actually, all in all, represent some, uh, some, some sort of care, uh, polit uh, politics of care. And this is something new for the world. This is the first time that women are doing, you know, running the countries. And this is the first time that they are not embarrassed of being powerful. So I am expecting some good from this as well. Brilliant. Okay, we have a question from Jorge and then one from Milan. So Jorge, do you want to ask your, your question? <laughs> okay. Thank you, Amanda. No, just uh, coming back to your to your book, uh, one of the chapters is named Design Your Own Citizen. Uh, it is clear to me by reading the book that I'm not sure if they are creating a citizen. There is a kind of a confrontation between the inland people looking to cities with unconfidence to, to the global elites. And so um, it's people that is looking inwards, is looking back to their own tradition and beliefs. Uh, 
as a kind of a, a seeking for a refugee from the outside. Mm -hmm. um, it's a kind of a rebirth of nationalism, I understand, uh, in times when globalization is being questioned and dismantled in okay. some way. So, uh, uh, do you agree with that? Because uh, I, I understand, I understand that these people, when they accuse you of being part of the global elite, is because they assume they are the the, the very Turkish, and um, but we are our our uh, global proposal is in crisis, so we have a problem. If I understood the, you know, input. Sorry, correctly. it's a bit confusing. Now. No, 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 it is me as well. I couldn't really hear. So, um, <laughs> uh, it seems irrelevant, but actually, it is relevant. There's a bit in together where I talked about my <laughs> attempt to grow tomatoes during pandemic. Like every middle class bored person, I had time to do these things. And then while growing tomatoes, I understood that, it, it was in my balcony, I understood that, I, I kind of came close to understanding this peasant state of mind, which is you are afraid of anything irregular, you're afraid of anything that is coming outside, anything strange and so on, foreigner. And then I, you know, when you're talking about this, I am thinking, that I'm a cosmopolitan person. I lived in several countries and I, you know, if it wasn't for pandemic, I would be flying to, you know, somewhere close to Manda and then we would be, you know, chatting. It's like this for me, flying to somewhere. And I have friends all over the world and so on. How many people are living like this? I wonder, not many. And yes, we became an elite, so to speak. We are not living amazing lives. We are not like the jet sets. Uh, people, but we are living a, you know, different life than, you know, a bank of, a, a officer in a bank, which, you know, rarely goes somewhere or me rarely meets a new person. Uh, so I think there is that as well, this, you know, the, there is this reaction to cosmopolitanism uh, and cosmopolitan persona, which I understand because... <laughs> My grandmother was a nomad, uh, but she was a conservative nomad. So she, she, she was telling me, I was going around too much, and she was telling me uh, the shoe that wanders too much brings shit. So I think that settled down understanding of life um, is fearful always, which is coming from outside, which is going around too much, the cosmopolite. Uh, yes, there is that. And weirdly enough, we are the ones who are talking, who are writing in newspapers, who are going on TV screens, telling our ideas. I think our ideas do not apply to their lives. But then this distinction, this parting ways, let's say, have become uh, have been manip manipulated by the right-wing populists and it has been exploited and it, 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 it has been turned to in a cultural war. That is something manufactured. I don't believe in that. But of course, there is a difference between the cosmopolitan and the non-cosmopolitan.
My friend is here uh, from Brussels, uh, and she came here to give a speech about Europe and cosmopolitan, uh, cosmopolitan European and so on. And we were talking about this because uh, she's a TV presenter, she's a novelist as well, Annalise Beck. Uh, we were talking about how our lives changed during pandemic. Now, we don't have the luxury of being cosmopolitan, we don't have the luxury of going here and there. Uh, and how pe for people like us, it is not only freedom, but also to realize ourselves, because our friends are in different countries, so we have to see them. We have to have the joy of life through this by creating a lot of carbon emission, actually. Uh, uh, but, you know, coming back to your question, yes, there is a there is a, you know, a big distance between two ways of life. But creating politics upon this, doing politics with this, is, is an easy way out of uh, the fact that all of us are living a life without dignity. And then, you know, you can talk about pride there to those people, uh, and we are the ones who are, you know, mischiefs of the humankind, who are bringing uh, who are breaking the pride of the people, and they are the ones who are, you know, defending the pride of the nation and so on. It's easier to do this than under, uh, explaining people that this is a system where, where every one of us is living a life in, in dignity. Thank you. Thank you. So Milan has a question which I think follows on quite naturally from that. So Milan has said... He, it's quite happy to ask, Milan. Do you want to unmute and go yeah. ahead? Yeah, sure. Thank you very much, Merova uh, Milan. <laughs> I am so happy to meet you, and I first want to thank you for all of your words and stories. They really mean thank a lot. Thank you. Thanks a lot. And after reading um, Women Who Blow or Knots this summer, uh -huh. <laughs> I then read uh, last week, I read Together again, and I really want to know if Dido's house is as real as Madame Lila's pelican. <laughs> But I won't ask you, I'll keep the faith and the, the mystery. Okay. I, I want to ask you about uh, the concept you use a lot in Together, the concept of human nature. Because mm -hmm. you say from the start of the book how we are capable of wonderful things, how it is in our, our nature to do wonderful and wondrous things, to create things, to create community. Um, but that makes me wonder if that makes the fascists of today and their supporters less human because of the things they do, uh, is that is what they do less natural? And I know you say in How to Lose a Country that we should concentrate on the dialogue with allies instead of analyzing the enemy um, if we conceive them as, 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 as an enemy. But I'm just wondering what to do can we imagine a world where we extend our friendship, our dignity, our, um, our love, care to these uh, people too, making them more human? How, how do you use the term human nature? This is, this is the you know, downside of writing a book that goes between you know, um, morality, emotions and politics because you suddenly find yourself with the responsibility of being Jesus Christ. Like, you know, I love you all. It is not, <laughs> I'm not Jesus Christ. <laughs> they are not less human. 
but fascism is the total loss of faith in humankind. They are human, totally human, uh, and they are do, doing what humans do when they lose faith in themselves. And they, when, when the power of un, uh, understanding, thinking and expressing is taken over by a, a higher power. So that is why I keep on talking about faith in humankind, because total loss of it is the moral fundamental of fascism. Because fascism thinks that humans are dirty um, and they're not enough, they're not good. That's why it fixes humans constantly, every bit of them. And humans become beautiful in fascist mind when they are together, when they are uniformed, when there is no color but gray. Fascism is the total erasing of human humanity from humans because they don't have faith in the colors of human so i don't think they're less human when it comes to dialogue yes i, I said in how to lose a country because this you know we have to have a dialogue we have to live together that became a thing especially after trump came to power and you know americans when they discover something it is uh, you know they think that this is the it is the first time in humankind something is discovered so they were trying to discover this living together with the trumpeteers um and then they theorized it which wasn't a good idea because when you give the stage to the organized and to an organized and mobilized uh ignorance then they talk and they will know you know they will leave no place for you to exist for the others for the other ideas to exist so they were kind of naive about this and this idea of dialogue living together has been tried in turkey we tried it we we failed wonderfully like it was horrible because we tried to give them space we uh, we legitimized them and then here we go i'm not living in turkey anymore like many other people so that is why as you mentioned i said in how to lose a country let's talk about the dialogue between ourselves between the allies between the between progressive forces and so on but then we together i try to do something else uh Yes, I'm not Jesus Christ, but I now know that we cannot, there is no button the, that will erase these people from the face of the earth. We don't have to agree with them. We don't, I don't have to respect them at all. That respect thing is also, you know, very, very dangerous. But um, I cannot erase them from the face of the earth so i have to find uh, find the words to at least uh to make them look at me to make a, to make me make them look at me to see that i'm a human and we are sharing sort of same problems we have our problems are uh not different than each other not so much so that is why i wrote together so it was a little bit uh disappointing for those people who might think that you know 
I was ready to write a book how to kill the fascists or how to erase them from politics and so on. Uh, so yeah, uh, I think yeah, I think it's clear what I. Wanted. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So we have one last question, I think, um, mm -hmm. which is I don't know. How, is it Asa or Isa? Do you want to ask your question? Um, hi, um, uh, AJ. Um, Hi. Yes, my, my question was short, but the reason I'm asking is I'm from the 78 uh, generation from Turkey and came here after 1980 and I, I follow the politics as much as I can. And uh, um, today's leftists, I, I feel they are um, going between, you know, what to do. You know, they are asking biggest question, how we can do it what we can do it. And they are trying and a lot of people and somehow they are not they are not getting together. That's why I like your book. Thank you. Uh, touched the fundamental part of it. And uh, it did kind of outline everything we need to um, get the principles right for us to communicate, I think. And then I thought there must be something to follow. Mm -hmm. What is next? Because now we are together. Uh, we, <laughs> how, <laughs> what, what we are going to do. So mm -hmm. I'm quite excited uh, what you are bringing up. And I think they are the solutions. And uh, I kind of uh, start to flourish my um, ideas because of the, your writing. Like um, creating a community, uh, shifting away from this current system and then moving towards to um, progressive ways. And I was following uh, Varis Yarikos, the Greek economist. So he's got brilliant ideas and maybe we can follow some <laughs> ideas. So it, it's, it flicks lots of ideas in, in me, and I think that will happen all together. Uh, uh, it can be done on its own. So I'm expecting another book from you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it, it is weird, because now I am the second generation who had to leave the country. Every, every generation, the progressives in Turkey have been rooted out every generation. So it is a miracle that the, still, the country is still standing and somehow uh, struggling against, still struggling against fascism. And I am proud of that part of my country. Um, so thank you for the question, Ayşe. Uh, I missed writing novels so much. So unfortunately, the next one will be a novel, hopefully. And it will take place in 1993 in Berlin, I'm hoping. Mm, the Turkish, you know, people would know the, uh, the woman and the British and the several other countries will know very soon because her book is now translated to English and it's coming out on 17th of September. Uh, there was a woman, a journalist and a novelist who, is, uh, who was a socialist as well in Turkey, her name was Suat Dervish. And this is the first time I'm saying this, by the way, um, to, you know, I, I told only two friends that I'm writing this, so you're the only ones who will know now. 
Suat Dervish uh, went to Berlin in 1993, uh, and I want to write a novel through her eyes. And yeah, that's what I want to do. Uh, I, it won't be, uh, unfortunately, it won't be a political book, but of, not not a political non-fiction book, but there will be politics in it, I think. Because I, I do I think like, that... I still like your novels as well. <laughs> thank you. Um, because I think how women survive in situations where everything is a mess will teach us a lot, will, could teach the world a lot, actually. Yeah, this is what I'm going to write about. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. And your timing, as ever, is impeccable because we've just hit the top of the hour. Yeah. So, unless anybody has a final, very short question to ask, which no one's put anything else in the chat, if you've got, you've got about five seconds to type furiously fast if you have a final question. I don't think so. Okay, so then I think we're done. Edgy, thank you so much for your thank time. Thank you, Amanda. I cannot thank you enough for this. You're in pain and you're doing this. I will never forget it. I appreciate and thank you, everyone. You've been amazing and thank you for making time to talk to me. Are you starting out a newsletter? Oh, yeah, I forgot to tell about that. Oh, my God, thank you for reminding me. I'm starting a newsletter. Uh, it's called Letters from Now. And I'm going to writing every week letters directly to your inbox, and I'm going to talking. I'm going to be talking about world events, my personal life, everything. It's it's going to be like together, and these letters will be centered around the concepts uh, that I talked about in together. Uh, if you want to know, you can go to lettersfromnow.com and leave your email. And then on seventh, we are launching the project in few days. Thank Excellent. you, Manda, for reminding me that. <laughs> okay, I have signed up. I am, I am in there as a sign-up. Thank you, thank you. So that's it for our Zoom call. Huge thanks to Edju, for Colleen from Zagreb, for her humanity and her insight and her visions of a way we can be better together. And thanks to all who took part and to you for listening. We'll be back at the normal time next week on a Wednesday with our usual podcast episode. But in the meantime, enormous thanks, as ever, to Caro C for stepping up and doing yet more sound production. Thanks to Faith Tillery for the website and particularly for creating really stunning event profiles. And thanks to you for listening. If you want to come to any of our other events, they are listed at accidentalgods.life and you'll find the membership programme there, where we endeavour to open a space where anyone, you, your friends, your colleagues, anybody at all, can learn to connect with the more than human world so that we too can be the best of ourselves and can step up to be whatever it is that the world needs us to be in this time of transition. So that's it for now. See you in the next episode. Thank you and goodbye.